You're listening to Soar Sessions with Dr. Trish and Jeff Todd. Hello, Dr. Trish. Hey, Jeff. Welcome. I'm calling it to the season premiere of season two of Soar Sessions. Perfect. It's like a Real Housewives episode. And we're on location today. Uh, In the bright, sunny city of... Town and country. Perfect. We are broadcasting live, not really live, recorded from the Neuropax Clinic, home of one Dr. Robert Hagen. The great Dr. Robert Hagen. The great Dr. Robert Hagen. Yeah, all right. This guy, I've uh, known him for a very long time since I've been in St. Louis, and he's affectionately known to me as the real Dr. House of St. Louis. I didn't know you had that nickname there. Neither did I. <laughs> he doesn't walk with a limp. I will tell you why. The reason is because this is the guy that you send patients to when you can't figure out what exactly is wrong with them, and it's not really fallen into the normal, um, the normal road for which a condition should fall into because his specialty which he has multiple specialties, is so unique that he thinks outside of the box and has a different way of looking at it. How's that for a reason? That's pretty reasonable. So Dr. Hagen also has a wonderful story, which I really enjoy, which is the fact that he is a hometown guy from the Union, Washington area that left the country to go to a little town and study at a little college that no one's ever heard of called Harvard and then come back to St. Louis as a surgeon and as a doctor. Is that a fair, is that a fair assessment, Dr. Hagen? I mean, I am, I'm a local guy, right? Grew up out in Union, Washington area and uh, did at, at some point end up in Harvard doing my surgical training. So we were there for seven years and in Boston and, I was very grateful for the training that I received. You both made that sound really funny. First of all, Harvard <laughs> out of the country, and you just somehow ended up in medical school in, at Harvard <laughs> right. during training. So uh, SLU Medical School, then Harvard for your training, right? Is that the, the pathway? Yeah. Um, we um, after, after St. Louis University Medical School, went to Boston again. We were there seven years where I did uh, general surgery and plastic surgery, and uh, stayed there, did a uh, hand and microsurgery fellowship, then came back to St. Louis um, after that. But while we were there, we were at um, the Leahy Clinic and the Harvard Hospitals. Yeah. How long is that training for each segment? So going into your fellowships and specialty training beyond plastics? So uh, combined general surgery, plastic surgery was a six-year, and then did two, fellow, two fellowships, so a total of eight years Goodness. after medical school. Goodness gracious. Yeah. We have a lot in common, Dr. Hagen and I. <laughs> I mean, if you subtract that I'm not from here, I never went to medical school, never seen Harvard. I mean, we're very similar. Didn't do a fellowship, <laughs> let alone two. No. Kind of the same. Yeah, very similar. So Dr. Hagen has 
really two specialties. Um, well, maybe more than that, actually. But you have uh, a, a burgeoning hand practice, and then you have a really busy peripheral nerve practice, um, peripheral nerve surgery. Uh, that is that the best way to categorize it? Yeah. And then, um, you know, I've always been a hand surgeon because I did a, a, a hand fellowship in, in, um, in Boston and we came back and did the craniofacial fellowship. And there was a method, different method to the madness for that training earlier on. Um, but what I didn't understand that it was going to prepare me to be a head to toe peripheral nerve surgeon as well. Right. So I still enjoy, um, general hand surgery, trauma, and over the years, Every year, we've kind of continued to grow our um, our peripheral nerve surgery services. So what is a peripheral nerve? It's a nerve just outside of the head and the spinal cord. So anything after it's left the central nervous system, which is the brain, and that spinal cord is considered a peripheral nerve. So you deal with all of those nerves, the little ones, the big ones, everything in between. Right. So everything outside of the central nervous system, as you said, brain and spinal cord central and all those nerves, hundreds of nerves outside of that, uh, we take care of. He knows anatomy. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's actually one of the most interesting parts of it, right? Because right. it commands you to know anatomy head to toe. Every little sensory nerve, every mixed motor nerve, what nerve, what that nerve does, whether it's you know motor function, whether it's a patch of skin that it's innervating. And so it really commands you to be a master of anatomy, which has always been my favorite thing. So let me ask this. This is way off topic, but interesting to me. Um, I'm walking through an airport or a grocery store and I see somebody walking in a strange way. With I try to identify where is the pathology. Do you do the same thing? Because it's all nervous system or sometimes for me it's muscular, but... Right. I mean, you you look at somebody's look at, gait, mm-hmm. right? You look at some way somebody holding their shoulder, or their arm, or are you or, looking at them and going, "Oh, that's the." I don't know. Sometimes, All sometimes right. I'm just happy to be not working because we work so much, right? <laughs> You're not as voyeuristic <laughs> apparently as I am. <laughs> so, true story. I spent the day with Dr. Hagen in the office, seeing patients with him, and uh, I think I shared this with Dr. Hagen. And the next day, I texted Dr. Herbert and I said, Hey, where's our anatomy book? I, I, I got to look some things up. True story. And, and she texts me back. We don't, there's not one. And I go, well, how do we not have one? And she says, because we know the anatomy already. And I go, not after I work with Dr. Hagen, he mentioned four <laughs> nerves I've never heard of and I've yet to find them on the internet. So I need help. I need a book. But that's what's fun. I mean, it, again, peripheral nerve commands, um, great knowledge of anatomy that a lot of people don't talk about, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a space that um, n- not a lot of people run into, right? I always say, for whatever reason, we're, we're going to run into the fire, not run away from the fire. And and you kind of have that too, right? I mean, you deal, I mean, with pain, right? Nobody, nobody wants pain. And to your point about watching people walk down the hall, pain's more silent, right? Now, right. there are some pattern recognition things that we look for and that somebody may be limping their gait or something or even their faces, right? Mm -hmm. All those things speak to pain and, um, but at the same time, it's silent. Right. So there's one thing I do want to touch on because it's something that I have to um, discuss with patients a lot 
is your plastic surgery training because it throws people for a loop um, when you say, hey, listen, I'm going to send you to this Dr. Hagen. He's a plastic surgeon. They go, what? <laughs> like, I thought I was going for my leg pain. Or, But the history of plastic surgery is it's not been about cosmetics for most of the history of plastic surgery, correct? Correct. And then another interesting fun fact I know about plastic surgery is it's one of the few surgical specialties that isn't really confined confined to one area in the body. You can kind of go wherever, I, I believe, if I understand that correctly. Right. And just to even become a board-certified plastic surgeon, you have to be able to reconstruct every component of the body, right? They may, um, during testing, may talk to you about a calvarial and scalp defect, they may talk to you about a chest wall defect. They may talk to you about a perineum defect or a lower extremity. So you again, the basis of that was anatomy, and that's what was attracted, you know, attractive to me initially. And then layer on to that, even in plastics, what they don't talk about is too much peripheral nerve, other than you know major nerves that are that are reconstructed after trauma or the main compression neuropathies like carpal tunnel or cubital tunnel or perhaps even tarsal tunnel. But, you know, there are, there are 27, 27 compression neuropathies on each side of the body, right? So, and we, so building on that foundation of anatomy to learn about nerve injuries, nerve pathology, it's kind of fun. Peripheral neuropathies is probably the thing that I think sets you way apart from I mean, I think it's safe to say anybody else in town, right? Yeah, I think um, focusing on the, on the peripheral nervous system, which encompasses a lot of peripheral neuropathy, right? And peripheral neuropathy is a pretty general term in itself because, you know, somebody might say neuropathy is, is a nerve injury, is a nerve compression, is a intrinsic... Um, Metabolic. Ner- ner- yeah, nerve irritation, idiopathic peripheral neuropathy you know, metabolic neuropathy, alcoholic-related neuropathy, all these things. It's a big, wide-spectrum term. So you really are the only physician in town that has that just peripheral nerve focus? Or are there other with Washington University? Are yeah, I think there's some other. Um, what I think we do have done well is is provide a comprehensive list. There's probably nobody that kind of does the head-to-toe that we do. Um from, you know, the headache migraine surgery to the thoracic outlet to the joint denervation to the chronic groin pain to the compression neuropathies to the nerve um, decompressions to the nerve transfers, you know, neuromas, excisions. And, you know, so That's exciting. So what's your favorite nerve? The last one. What is um, the last nerve? Is it the one in the toe? <laughs> you're on the toe my, nerve? You're on my last nerve. <laughs> That's hard. Um, I mean, I, I I enjoy. It's more about, as you know, relieving people from pain, right? And so it's more about the problem solving. It's about efficiently making the diagnosis and coming up with a comprehensive care plan and relieving that person from that nerve pain. So I'm less attracted to which nerve as. You like the patient experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, helping people. I mean, there's days, and I I get, I always talk about this space. This space is unique. Um, There's not a lot of people in that space kind of beating on their chest saying, I'm the best 
peripheral nerve surgeon around, right? But you get to help a lot of people, and uh, that's kind of the reward, right? And if you're if you're like me, I'm I'm at least tenacious, tenacious, right? I'm I'm like a dog on a bone. So to problem solve somebody out of pain gives me gratification, and it's a lot of fun. So when you treat peripheral nerve injuries, do you have a specific window of opportunity that works best for that nerve? Is there a point when there's probably a little return after an injury? So if people listening to this go, ah, this is my miracle. I've been waiting for him. And they were injured 10 years ago. How much, what's your, what's your window so of opportunity? So the you, time clock run right. out on a nerve problem. So it depends on the nerve injury, right? So if, in fact, you have a, a nerve injury that involves a motor component of the nerve, right? And it's been passed. Motor meaning yeah. supplying the muscle, helping right. them actually function and move right. or lift or a strength component. Okay? Right. Yeah. So if that nerve, which goes to that muscle, which um, allows motion, right, um, has been injured for longer than about a year, it's going to be hard to to recover that specific nerve, right? Um, so it depends on if it's a motor nerve versus a sensory nerve, which sensory is pain and touch and sensation, right? That tingling right. or burning, sometimes right. even itching. Right. Those tend to have a longer period of time where you can, uh, can help those, right? I mean, a, a neuroma that is formed from an injury, from a laceration, from a contusion, from... Um, various types of injuries will just stay there, right? And it'll continue to hurt, right? And so you can go in and excise those neuromas and treat those, um, whether it's been there a year or 10 years. How do you know if you have a neuroma? Do I have to see you or is there a specific thing? I'm thinking I have a neuroma. What is that? It's just pain from that localized area after I've been injured that hasn't gone away when we think it should have gone away? Right. So I, I guess I, I dial out and think about what's our approach to that, right? So somebody comes to and has pain, right? And we're trying to differentiate whether or not that is a um, localized to a nerve, right? So we, we're, we're looking really at pattern recognition, right? So you're looking at what the symptoms are. You're looking at what the distribution of the symptoms are. You're doing a focused physical examination, right? And so if you check off those boxes and you, then all of a sudden you say, this seems like this nerve, right? So then you say, what can I do to further diagnose or further confirm whether that nerve's involved? So you say, I'm going to do a diagnostic injection, right? So which you use as well, right? So we use you know, some numbing medicine and we temporarily take that nerve out of service to mimic perhaps a surgery that might benefit them, right? So we block it and the nerve, the pain goes away. They've had the pain for five years, you know, and, and with one little simple injection, it goes away for three to four hours with some marcaine, right? That's supporting your working diagnosis of that what that nerve problem is. So you've you've established that it has symptoms, or the patient has symptoms. Established the distribution of those symptoms. You confirmed that with the physical examination. You defined what nerve you wanted to 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 or the nerve that you think that's that's affected or injured. You've then further confirmed with a with a diagnostic block, right? So then then you have a working diagnosis that has some 
reasonably objective information around it and supports what you think you might do. Then you look at what options you have to treat that. Right? So I think what, what we've done well is take pain in the periphery, which used to be kind of this nebulous problem, and everybody put it in a basket of, of you know, they must have some kind of complex pain syndrome, right? And if, so all of a sudden you, you've, you've provided a systematic approach to identifying actually which nerve might be the problem, right? And this is, we're talking about neuroma versus compression versus, you know, big forearm laceration where we know that the, the median nerve or the ulnar nerve in the arm has been lacerated, right? You know so these different. nerves, Jeff, don't you? I've heard of them. Okay. Yes. You didn't need the anatomy book for that? <laughs> no. Okay. Whew. That's on my radar. Those two. It's gonna have to fire you. <laughs> but you do some you do some really I don't know if the word off the wall is appropriate, but you do no. some crazy stuff. <laughs> I mean from he, a he does innov it's innovative, not crazy. Innovative. I, that's a better word. I like that word better too. But it I, I think sometimes when I've talked to patients about coming over to see you or patients that I've seen and they, they've seen you like it's hard to kind of put the stuff you do in a basket. I mean, to tell people, oh, yeah, he can decompress a nerve in the back of your head that I'd get rid of your headaches you've had for forever. He can decompress a nerve above your eyeball that takes away migraines that you've been suffering forever with. I mean, that's that sounds out of this world when you explain that stuff to patients. They're like, what? Yeah, whiplash, you know, chronic whiplash injuries. Crazy that they can finally get relief. Again, for me, it becomes, it's always a challenge if I get patients who are nine to 10, 12 months into pain, I almost always share with them that I'm not going to get rid of your pain because pain becomes multifactorial at some point. The brain is so complex and we haven't figured it out. But to fix the nerve, to take away that physical, physical component to pain or the pain experience or that abnormal sensory experience because sometimes it's not what we would describe as pain it could be something totally different then how amazing is that for a patient and why things before that you know the injections I do the ablations or radio frequency burning of certain nerves why that wasn't enough and then you can come in and decompress, it almost seems like that should be the initial step rather than the last step. Because again, we're working with a nerve that has a time frame for recovery. Right. I, I, I like that, that topic. And I always kind of frame that as stratification of care, right? And so what we just all need to be committed to, to doing as, as we work together more and more is just defining what, what's the entry-level treatment, right? What's the first best treatment? Right, and it might be it might be an, an ablation makes complete sense first, but it might be that it's severe enough that excision of the of the nerve needs to be the primary, right? And that's that's done through collaboration and working and and identifying the severity of the symptoms and the mechanism and the patient and all those things, right? Which I think is um, what you are attempting to do in a way that traditional medicine doesn't allow us to do. We're all specialists. We're all like little islands by ourselves. And there's no good phone line between those islands. But you're trying to develop this 
comprehensive evaluation of pain specific to ner- the nervous system in a way that's innovative. Like that, Jeff? I like that. Not crazy, innovative, <laughs> and new. I don't completely retract crazy. So I think that that approach, as brilliant as it is, and better for the patient, We there might be a little, you know, a little block from traditional medicine and providers on how that would work. Right. I mean, we're all, we're all, we all try to be thoughtful, right? We all try to be great clinicians and we all try to help the patient, right? Because at the end of the day, um, that's part of our, you know, hitting our happy button is to help somebody, right? You, you talked earlier about helping somebody out of pain. Um, that's good stuff, right? Uh, it's a win-win for everybody. So taking that to the next level is, is, Putting someone like you, someone like me, other multiple care providers focusing on that same and same problem, and then stratifying the care and, and refining to get better, to be more efficient. And fixing the traditional medical model so that patients actually get faster, more appropriate care. Right. It's a little bit of a paradigm shift. What do you call that clinic that you're developing? What is that? Is that your Neuropax? Yeah, I mean, Neuropax was was born out of of the need for us to say, "Hey, we, we have some unique services here. We, we had to learn how to tell our story about, you know, these these are not just typical general hand and extremity problems. We're we're now taking care of of peripheral nerve problems from head to toe, and um, so we came up with neuro, Neuropax, which neuro means nerve of nerve, right? Pax is Latin for peace, right? So nerve peace. And where we were focusing on just the peripheral nervous system, we hope to eventually focus comprehensively on the nervous system, whether it be spine and peripheral nerve, and to get better at helping people. And that's not just the surgical part. It's nutrition, whole body health, wellness. That's what scares people. I think they, so. They think it. They think in the in short term instead of long term when it comes to outcomes and cost. And so, for me, I think your approach in and that thought process is brilliant because the long term cost effectiveness of a whole body immediate comprehensive review of a problem would save so much in quality of life issues financially for insurance companies, financially for patients who spend so much more money now with co-pays for every visit and equipment they need to make their lives easier going back to work. So that's a great, that's a great segue actually, because I do want him to touch on a couple of things that are his wheelhouse, if you will. His favorite nerves. His favorite nerves. But one of them you already alluded to is post-whiplash pain. And this is, this is a, a serious problem. We see a lot of these patients, and um, our workup is typically we go. Well, we let's go. back up a little bit. So whiplash, sort of a controversial diagnosis, accepted in lay populations, accepted in a certain population of physicians, and in another group of physicians, totally controversial. They don't believe in the, the whiplash. So whiplash could be, and in my opinion, is pain that comes from a distortion of the anatomy of the cervical spine or the neck. 
and I would leave it as easy and simplified as that. And you can break it down to a joint disorder in the neck, a nerve disorder in the neck, a soft tissue, meaning the muscles, tendons, ligaments of the neck. Rarely does it become something that's um, intracranial or within the brain, but it could. So we see a lot of these patients, right? Post-auto accident, neck pain, head, posterior, back of their head, pain, headaches. I mean, um, very common after auto accident. Probably the number one complaint after auto accidents. With a rear-end motor vehicle accident. Yeah. Um, significant. And we take them down the road. We work their neck up, make sure they haven't hurt a disc, make sure they haven't hurt one of the big nerves in the neck, spinal cord, all those things. But then there's a, a group of patients that they still have pain. And they're... Their imaging studies may appear completely normal or appropriate for their age or activity level. And you still, if you just use those imaging studies, you would be misled. And I think there's a large amount of providers in this town, if they don't have a relationship with a guy like Dr. Hagen and they don't understand what he does, then the workup is your MRI is normal, therapy. You live with this, you maybe get some medicines, and that's kind of the road, right? Right. We have nothing else to offer you. Yeah, so you live with this. Go to pain management. Go to go to pain management, which then they end up with us. And then if we don't have a guy like Dr. Hagen and understand what he does, then we manage their pain best we can, maybe some injections or different things like that. But when you do have a guy like Dr. Hagen in your back pocket and you understand what he does, do we have Dr. Hagen in our back? I, I like to think so. <laughs> that we have him as a resource. I'm available. When you have a resource like Dr. Hagen and you can contact him, but you've got a different way of thinking about this. I mean, you when you've explained this stuff to me, I've been like, my mind gets blown because I'm like, I'm, I know a hundred of those patients when you explain them. I'm like, I can give you a hundred of them right off the top of my head that I'm like, We've been treating that person. Oh, let's talk about that intrascapular pain. In, after a day with you, he came back, and I've been dealing with this young guy who has had everything done, and it's shoulder blade pain. You know, he worked up his neck because we know there are common referral patterns from the neck, and that's good. We worked up his mid-back. He had an ablation procedure where we took care of the nerves coming from the spine, He's had injections into the scapular bursa, which is the cushion between the bone and the muscle or tendon junction, and nothing has helped him. He's very active. He knows the bodies of you know trained in this area, and yet I'm like, ah, there's something I've been missing because this he, there's no way this is a fabricated symptom. He has this pain. There's nothing really telling on the exam so much as a little dysfunction in how the muscles work together. And then... Say so layer in, is it a question of a dorsal scapular nerve? Dorsal is it a suprascapular nerve? Exactly. And, and if it's dorsal scapular, is it at the scaling the muscle or is it at the and levator? A, or? And there, the <laughs> diagnostic ability to look at that area, so under ultrasound, the nervous system looks good. Under EMG studies, electrodiagnostic studies, those those tests where you get to shock and poke people, you know, if it's a suprascapular nerve, we have some some good data to support that. But those are sometimes missed. The specificity and sensitivity of those tests are not great. For dorsal scapular, I'm not aware, at least in my training, of any kind of electrodiagnostic evaluation that would be accurate in that. 
Yeah, both of those nerves, if you're picking them up on the electrodiagnostic study, they're pretty far along, right? And so we want to look at that earlier, right? And, and again, that's that stratification of care, a little bit of a paradigm shift to, to start thinking about what is the symptom? What's the distribution of that symptom? Let's use some blocks to, to, to get out in front and determine, does that even, does that relieve the pain, right? And it doesn't mean we're going to go you know, charging in and do surgery, there's then all of a sudden we've, we've localized, right? We've narrowed it down. We have a, have a, a suspicious nerve problem and then we can use our different modalities that we might use together or independently. Right. But it did, it opens your eyes to like, this is a completely different way of thinking about some of the stuff that we think we understand really well. But you know, that's the, that's a problem about, um, that's a problem with private practice. You get so isolated that I, I do miss that collaborative thought process because when you're in training, we're doing this all the time. So you get to think like a brilliant clinician and it's sort of promoted. When you're by yourself, you think a certain way, you get into certain habits and you it's hard to think outside of that paradigm that we've created for ourselves. It's really hard to get patience out of that rut too because patients get stuck whether it's their healthcare insurance whether it's their I mean there's a lot of different reasons patients get in a rut and to get them out of that rut to a different hey I want you to see this different clinician and then they get into a place where they're like well I've already seen three different people and you're like no you haven't seen somebody that does this because they've the oftentimes patients get put into or under the care of the wrong provider and not that they're wrong in that the provider is a bad physician. It's just the wrong place for that type of patients. And I know you see that a lot, that that somebody probably ended up with me when they should have been with you two years ago. That's just all about the importance of the collaboration, right? right? And, and just, you know, what is your optic, right? And, and being part of the team, whether you're in the same space or not, um, the communication on that and, and, and shifting the treatment pathways, right? I mean, and, and from my standpoint, you know, I've, I've always approached my practice like that I'm kind of an academic person, but I'm in private practice, right? Academic uh, means nerdy. <laughs> you said Any, it, not me. I always think like focus on problem solving, sharing, sharing, thinking through problems, but making sure sharing. Like, you know, we we continue to um, do publications and and try to, to Jeff's point, if we have something innovative um, off the wall and that it's working really well, we, we tend to share that with our uh, colleagues and we try to publish that and, um, and, and share. All right. In my defense, we're going to talk about some <laughs> what I quote called nutty. I, I, want, you, I, I want you to explain. I think the most innovative treatment, you've got a couple, but I do. What really blows my mind every time I think about it is the sore stuff because it just is something that it, you know, to try to explain that to patients, Hey, there's a nerve compressed by your eye above your eye. And it, if you can decompress it, your headaches that you've had for years and years and years can go away. That's a really hard concept. The super orbital. Are you? Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so sores like, so our, our paper that we wrote on super orbital rim syndrome, which I'm, I think, hopefully will be a foundational paper 
took the constellation of, of what your anatomy is at your superorbital rim. So you have a superorbital nerve, you have a supertrochlear nerve, and you actually have a zygomaticotemporal nerve, which is on the outside of your eyebrow. And it's, it's a common um, trend that all three of those nerves are involved. But think of it like this. I mean, those nerves are peripheral nerves, right? Carpal tunnel, right, is, a, is the median nerve. It's a peripheral nerve, and it's just pinched. It's pinched at the wrist. By the way, it's a, it's a nerve problem, not a wrist problem, right? It's first a, it's a compression neuropathy, right? We talked about peripheral neuropathy. It's a compression neuropathy. And you, it's any, any peripheral nerve can be pinched or compressed, right? And so you have three of them right at the eye that can be horribly pinched, horribly irritated, neuralgic, as we would say. And they just need to be decompressed or excised, right? So is this problem, and this is where I've gone back to people, the success of Botox in migraine headaches, you're probably treating a little bit of the entrapment of the superoral nerve with Botox, which relaxes the muscles around that nerve. But to get some long-term serious release, you'd have to release it surgically. Right. So in, in, that's early, in the early days, they used Botox as part of the, the diagnostic pathway to figure out whether or not you can decompress those nerves, right? I think therapeutic Botox uh, still has two different realms. There's a, there's a, there's a space where the um, um, cluster headaches, uh, myofascial-type things that respond well to the circumferential Botox all the way around the head and down the neck, right? We tend to use it a little more um, focused on the problem. So somebody might come in to us as early as four weeks after like getting hit in the head, right? And so if they have a contusion of their, let's just say, superorbital nerve, right? So it's irritated, it's inflamed, it's just not happy, right? But every time you animate and your eyebrow raise or you frown and it pulls, those muscles pull on those nerves that are fixed at the anatomic you know, point at the, uh, at, the, at the rim of the eye, right, the bone right around the eye. And so if that's a, sprain, if that's a sprained wrist, right, I'm going to put a splint on it, right? I, can't, I don't really have a splint for the, for the eyebrow, right? But you can use Botox to paralyze the forehead, look a little youthful while you're doing it, and it, that, that your animation, your hyperdynamic brow muscles, forehead muscles, don't pull on that nerve, and it gives the time, the body time to heal, right? So that's what I always, that's kind of how I explain it is. We're, we're splinting your brow while your nerve might, um, might improve. Yeah, it's interesting. And the anatomy of a nerve, you, if over time you slowly compress something, slowly compress a nerve, our bodies are amazing at not being affected by that. They don't do so great with the stretch. Nerves don't like to be stretched. You're right. I mean, t- uh, as much as pinch or compression of a nerve is important, tethering is as well. Right. So any nerve like a tendon needs a gliding surface, right? So if it's tethered or pinched there and you turn your head or you your hyperdynamic forehead brow are pulling on those nerves, right? It doesn't tolerate it very well. And So the patients that undergo sores, what are those typical, what do they look like? The chronic headaches is a one uh, presenting symptom, correct? Yeah, so they tend to have chronic daily headache, right? And these neuralgias, 
these nerve irritations around the eye, right, can be an irritation and trigger migraine, right? So anybody who has migraine chemistry, right, can have a list of triggers. And it could be, you know, red wine. It could be bagel from the gluten. It could be the weather changes, right? Or it could be one of these um, nerve irritations, right? And they tend to be, so the patients that tend to have that tend to have a, a dull background headache across the frontal brow, behind the eyes, maybe up into the forehead, into the scalp line. But those who have migraine, those that nerve irritation will periodically, at least at first, activate their migraine, right? So it's a, simply a trigger. You're, 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 when you're doing surgery, you're deactivating a migraine trigger. And at first it starts out intermittent, right? But as that nerve pathology develops over time, all of a sudden, it's like if you have red wine trigger, it's like sitting around guzzling red wine all day and you don't have control over it, right? Versus really if gluten or red wine is a, is a trigger of migraine, you can actually, you know, avoid, avoid that, right? Um, but once the nerve pathology gets bad enough, then it's just constantly activating their migraine chemistry. And these surgeries, they're not, I mean, I, I, I would call them massive because they're pretty technically massive, but you're not filleting these people open with large incisions. You're able to do these through pretty small cosmetic incisions, correct? Right. So with, with the superorbital rim syndrome, we actually use a cosmetic type incision, right? Everybody knows what a kind of a blepharoplasty or an eyelid tuck is, right? And and we utilize the same incision for that or a, or a, a hairline incision. So all these, all these incisions were born out of, you know, kind of... Plastic the, surgery background. Yeah, yeah. So cosmetic and you, you, you can't even notice them when we do them. So that's just so, part of fun. So you can improve your appearance and get rid of your headaches all in one visit. Yeah, and some patients we actually do do a blepharoplasty, right? But if you think there's functional right. there's functional reason why we do that. So if you have extra lid skin, your your brow is dropped, a lot of people are walking around like this all the time. Trying right? to hold their eyes they're, open. Yeah, they're hyper-contracted, right? And they're pulling on their nerves. So uh, we simply take lid skin out so that they're not doing that all the time. They're not trying to correct for their, you know, ptosis or eyelid drooping that they have. Um, so that's just a benefit. Interesting. The other thing I wanted to touch on, because I find it really fascinating, is thoracic outlet. So. TOS, a <laughs> physiatrist's nightmare or dream. I, I haven't decided yet. So we're going to teach it. A, it's going to be a dream. It'll be a dream. It's a systematic approach to it. All so. Right. I think traditionally thoracic outlet has been, at least in mine, it was like something we were always taught, but it was like, you never really saw it like, or I don't know if there we were some, really ever there. Yeah. Arterial or vascular thoracic outlet was like pretty clear cut. And then neuro, neurogenic thoracic outlet, we diagnosed with electrodiagnostic studies. And then there were all these people who had TOS symptoms and yet didn't have the, quote, cervical rib or any compression from any an anatomical problem, and their electrodiagnostic studies were normal. That's where we treated them like a TOS patient, and we gave them exercises, we helped with their posture, 
We strengthen the posterior scapular muscles to help bring those muscles out of a area of tightness into more flexible. Um, but it was always simply frustrating. So let's, let's kind of define TOS for the listeners a little bit. Thoracic outlet syndrome traditionally thought of as a compression of the nerve and the blood supply. Yeah. Nerves. Nerves and the blood supply specifically. Could be, could be either or. Either or. But in the traditional workup that they teach you, it's that whole, you know, checking for changes in pulse with neck position and different things like that. But then let's say you did diagnose somebody. It was kind of a, that was a big step because the next step from a surgical perspective was this pretty scary surgery where you have to take, you have to call in a thoracic surgeon. A lot of them didn't do it. They take a rib off of your neck, essentially your chest, and then free up that area underneath you, kind of in the area where your neck and shoulder come together. Right. An area where just at the angle between the neck and the shoulder where they feel the the ner- nerves that come from the spine kind of group together into certain bundles. We call it the brachial plexus. And before they all divide, there's some compression or stretch at that area and it can cause symptoms that mimic other diagnoses. So some of those symptoms are similar to what we feel when there's a pinched nerve in our neck. Some of those nerves are what we feel when we have carpal tunnel even. You can have tenderness in your chest wall. You can have tightness in the neck muscles. You can have restricted motion. And it is a difficult treatment from a conservative standpoint for people who have advanced, quote, TOS symptoms. And in a way, if you couldn't really diagnose diagnose a problem in medicine, it doesn't exist. And fibromyalgia is a, you know, the quintessential diagnosis that nobody believes in because there's no test for it. And we found that, yes, fibromyalgia does exist. There will be tests tests to measure the amount of pain. TOS oftentimes kind of fell into that category if it didn't have a specific way to clinically evaluate it. And then we began with these diagnostic injections. It became more apparent that if you blocked a muscle, if you put some numbing medicine, and you relaxed a muscle, and these symptoms improved, that there was some sort of compression around those nerves that we didn't really appreciate from any other test we could do. Right. And it boils down to to your talk about the compression is it's really like carpal tunnel, but it's the whole brachial plexus, right, which is a big bundle of nerves coming off the neck. When I, when I first started looking at this problem, it was when we were kind of growing our list of, of things that we were helping with per, peripheral nerve, right? When I understood that 95% of the cases of TOS were neurogenic or nerve-related and only 5% were vascular, it, 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 it caught my attention. I said, all right, so the 95% of the time that they were at least they were getting surgery in that time, they were maybe perhaps getting a vascular surgery for a nerve problem, right? And so let's look at that from a different optic. Let's look at that from the optics of a nerve, a peripheral nerve surgeon, and 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 start to break that down such like, right? And then so you start looking at it and you say, what's what are the what are the anatomic, anatomic components of it? 
And you have to look at three different areas every single time. You have to look at the scaling triangle. You have to look at the costal clavicular um, space. And you have to look at the pec minor subcoracoid space. So, so he's it, just referred it, to muscle and bone anatomy in the right. front of the chest and neck. That's right. So fixed anatomic points that may affect that. And if, in fact, you could identify which specific piece or part of that was was truly the 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 um, the pathology, right? All of a sudden, you could start focusing and again and again relooking on how to simplify the treatment. To Jeff's point of every time you go in to, to treat this from a surgical standpoint, you didn't need to take out the first rib. Matter of fact, we only take out the first rib less than five percent of the time now, right? We We've taken a, a, a big surgery, we've turned it into a less invasive surgery, still a, a real surgery, um, and we do it the same day. The patient goes home the same day now, right? So outpatient, um, we're focusing on the nerve component to it. And, and again, all those things um, um, are, are related to the paradigm shift and how we treat this. Talk a little bit about your concept of TOS and brachial plexus injury as it relates to like stretch. Um, You talked to me one time about bleeding in the neuromycium and and how you think these maybe even whiplash injuries or or things could actually. I would like you to spell neuromycium. I was told there'd be no math. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, you, you explained to me one time how maybe some of these brachial plexus or even neck injuries or whiplash injuries were actually, they were nerve injuries, but we weren't thinking of them in the, in the exact same way because is, is that related to TOS or is that more of a neck whiplash thing? It's a great question. So I, I love this topic, right? It's his other favorite nerve. (laughs) I guess these are my two favorite nerves, right? So in, in any kind of, let's say, let's first say whiplash injury, right? Are the, are the two, that that mechanism are the two most common causes of occipital neuralgia syndrome, and those are headaches thora- in the back of the head. Typically, just an easy way to think of it. Yep, and the thoracic outlet, which we've just we started talking about, which is involving the brachial plexus, which is the bundle of nerves coming out of the neck going to the arm and shoulder. Um, but so those what happens in that stretch type injury, right? We we believe that. There's lots of little fine little vessels on top of the nerve. And in that injury, we think it just takes one little vessel to be popped or uh, to open and then bleed along the nerve sheath, right? So the analogy I always use is if, like, think think of your arm and think if you have a tight sleeve on, on your arm. And between your skin and the shirt, there's a system of, of vessels, right? And somebody comes by and hits your arm or pulls your arm and one of those little vessels break, right? And all of a sudden that potential space between the shirt sleeve and your arm eventually fills with blood, right? Now the body's pretty good about resorbing that, right? I mean, we call it a hematoma, right? It's a collection of blood. But at the end of the day, what does it leave behind, right? It leaves behind fibrosis and scar tissue, which sticks that nerve and tethers it, right? So we go back to the concept we were talking about whether it's on the occipital nerve in the back of the head, every time you turn your head or in, in the brachial plexus, every time you move your arm or your shoulder or even turn your head as well. And with that, that stretches and pulls that nerve, which is tethered. It's kind of like nailing a rubber hose 
to the wall, right? It still kind of moves, but it's tethered to that point. Body doesn't like that. Nerves certainly don't like that. And what's even more interesting, because of the topic, this is interesting because of the electrodiagnostic studies, right? Don't pick that pathology up very commonly, right? No. But it still causes people an inordinate amount of pain, right? So we had we had to go through this whole process of re-educating everybody. Like, I, I understand we don't use an electrodiagnostic study in the neurogenic thoracic outlet to diagnose neurogenic thoracic outlet. We use it to make sure I'm not missing something or give additional information so I'm not missing something at the neck or identify downstream other nerve compression such as, like you were talking about, carpal tunnel or cubital tunnel. And then further, we use that to sometimes the nerve is really stretched, right? Thinking of overstretching that hose so it doesn't kind of come back and it's it's really truly injured. A plexopathy, right? Right. So a true plexopathy I look at is an intrinsic problem with the nerve. And and thoracic outlet is a is a condition which is extrinsic. It's tethering. Outside. It's like a Chinese finger trap, right? And it that doesn't show up on the electrodiagnostic study, which is frustrating because it would make it a whole lot easier if it did, right? So what about double crush? So double crush is a concept that was that was um, defined, I guess, defined um, that one more than one nerve or more than one pinch or compression on the same nerve can occur, right? Or in its, uh, I would say, I use the analogy like if you're out hosing off your your patio in the backyard or on the back um, and you turn around and there's two guys and they weigh about three 325 and they're standing on the garden hose 10 to 15 feet apart right and you get one guy to get off the hose but there's still another one right so you you've got more than one point of pinch or compression on along the same nerve so you have to differentiate that, and that's where we, we see that. I think we we do we do a really good job at, at defining that because so many people define the one person, and they forget about the other guy. Right. And I always and I explain to patients that having two guys on that hose makes the condition typically worse. That and take away one of those guys being three hundred pounds, the other one could be a fifty pound kid, and that just because that 50 pound kid is on there makes the condition worse downstream um, that the nerves are more sensitive to injury with a more proximal or, or an injury closer to the brain um, or the spinal cord. Agree. So yeah, double crush is interesting and I think might explain a lot of the failures we have with, some of the surgical treatments, for example, carpal tunnel that's still symptomatic or carpal tunnel that has classic EMG findings. Oh, no. You just walked into it. EMG. Another Dr. Hagen learning moment <laughs> from my mini rapid fellowship. Dr. Hagen, would you like to explain to Dr. Herford why most of the time people have chronic pain after a carpal tunnel release? What, what is being missed often? Well, I mean, it's, it's... I'm putting him on the spot here. <laughs> well, I think it'd be a couple things, right? So it, we'll often see somebody coming back in that's had a carpal tunnel that is being considered for a revision surgery, right? 
And um, one of the most common is the nerve compression at the proximal median forearm, right? You were getting ready to explain that. I just, it would just but, <laughs> sparked my memory of him explaining that to me in clinic the other day. So, but, but that's the whole thing. And, and again, it's, it's even on the simplest thing of a carpal tunnel, right? We, we talk about, we feel like we're really well equipped to evaluate the whole extremity. And this is your point about the double crush is that, yes, lots of people can diagnose and treat the carpal tunnel, but what happens if, in fact, they miss the proximal median or the brachial plexus or the spine, right? Right. So it's really, I mean, when we talk about double crush, it could be at the spinal level and the carpal tunnel, right? It could be at the brachial plexus and the spine level, right? So having a comprehensive evaluation of that limb is whether it's your upper extremity, your lower extremity is really, really important, I think. I agree. I agree. We could go on and on. <laughs> He's got the skills to go on and on. He's got to go back to the farm. <laughs> <laughs> that is another passion of his we didn't even touch on, his Another passion. Would you call it a what, passion? What is your, what are your hobbies? Do you have like <laughs> one thing that like kind of, def, if, if your friends were listening, they go, oh, he likes blah. Yeah. I mean, I used to like golf, right? And then I got a farm. So to <laughs> the typical so, doctor who's gone farmer. I mean, I, I love being around the animals. I love being outside. Um, uh, I love the cerebral part of, of what we do with our, with our cattle program, you know, there's, there's genetics involved, there's animal uh, science, there's nutrition, all those things kind of intersect in that project. It's pretty cool. A lot of animal husbandry. Jeff, that's in your neighborhood, not his. (laughs) To kind of wrap it up, I do want to say, or I do want to ask you this last question, which is what patients should think about what, what symptoms might patients have where you go, Hey, you need to really put a doc, a guy like Dr. Hagen in, in your on your map as far as is it the headache sufferer who's had headaches and tried different migraine medications without without uh, relief? Is it the whiplash patient who's had a bunch of things done on their neck and they people tell them that there's no help for you? Is it the leg numbness that no one says says there's no cause for it? Like when you kind of think of say the top five complaints that patients should really think about me for, what would Maybe what would that look like? It's a tough question. We struggle with that, how to, how to frame what we do, right? And it really boils down to mechanism or disease. Um, disease is such a, maybe there's a better word. But, you know, it's that whiplash patient, right? It's the patient who has numbness and tingling in their arm, has the chronic headache, and everything else is coming out negative, right? It's the patient who has had the lower leg fracture and still has pain and numbness, right? Um, So persistent pain in the context of numbness um, is probably the biggest generic thing, right? Um, But it's, it's hard because that's what we, we, we talk about the mechanism like is, you know, have you had a total knee replacement and you still have pain, right? It, 90% 90% of that time is, is that it's anterior knee pain. And there are certain nerves that can be neuralgic or have neuromas that we need to evaluate and block. Is it, have you had a, a hernia repair and you still have pain, right? There's six nerves involved in the groin that need to be assessed if you have chronic groin pain, right? Um, 
have you rolled your ankle and you had an early foot drop and you have sinus tarsi pain, right? It's, it's, it's very mechanism related. It's very disease specific. Then I go back to my Dr. House explanation. That's exactly why. I, I am buying into it. Because when you can't explain it, he's the guy that can help. I want to be the resident with Dr. House who's saying, what do you think? And making me think that way. If you reach out to me, Jeff Todd at SoreSessions.com, I can get you an application for the Neuropax Rapid <laughs> Fellowship Program. $1,500. Actually, if you look at Sore Sessions, you can find out how to reach Dr. Robert Hagen. That's right. The Neuropax and Nerve Guru. Office in town and country, Missouri, right? Uh, conveniently located at Mason and 40. Um, and uh, neuro, available online at neuropaxclinic.com. And, and we'll put all the links to his, his office location in the uh, description of the podcast. But before we let him go. Our favorite part. Our favorite Always. part. Always. It's been a while. We haven't done it in a while. I know. It's time. It's time. I'm, afra- I'm afraid. For <laughs> his, his, our favorite segment, and the segment that the guest never knows is coming unless they listen to the podcast. But it's time for Getting Hammered with Dr. Hagen. So, five questions, semi-rapid fire. We want top-of-mind uh, answers, not um, not your typical well-thought-out, uh, deliberated answers. We want, this is uh, more Rorschach, Rorschach than it is uh, uh, essay. Truly, and Jeff will tear you down regardless. I have never insulted a guest's answers, only yours. <laughs> only mine. Mine was a brilliant answer. I'm very afraid. Hor- All right. And, and they're always random. Five questions. Question number one. If you could be any animal, what would you be and why? Buffalo. That's wow. a damn good answer. That was fast, too. He's obviously thought of this one before. The random thing about it is I thought about it today. Because I know that it's a it's a question and I and something came across one of my uh one of my emails and it had this big picture, a big canvas of a beautiful buffalo with the snow and Yellowstone, right? And I had almost bought a like a painting or a, a, a print like that. I'm sorry, five years ago. For coat. Right? With <laughs> and the, the randomness of that question and that I thought about it today is funny, but I thought, gosh, that's my, that's my answer to that question. It's like, I got to be a Buffalo in the middle of Yellowstone in the middle of the snow. So it, it, random beyond just that looked cool. That was a great answer. <laughs> How about that? Perfect. <laughs> that was rapid fire. I would expect nothing else than perfect answers from you. <laughs> yeah, right. This is what happens when you ask, ask these you questions ask my wife that. to a Harvard-educated I man. Know. I was going with like <laughs> an antelope or leopard, something fast. Next question. Second question. What is the strangest thing you've ever eaten? Buffalo. <laughs> Same buffalo from picture. That's a harder one. I always say my, my I was like, I'll try anything twice, right? <laughs> um, probably some, some random fish egg from the sushi place that was in Boston when we were there. We were always trying something new. So 
Less, less, uh, less exciting answer. It's tough. That's always a tough question, but I always like to hear it because some we've had people that have traveled way abroad and have eaten really random things. And Anthony Bourdain, you know, very moments. Much. Yeah. Question number three. What TV sitcom family would you be a member of? Family Ties. <laughs> Mike. Michael. What was it? Michael Fox? Jay Fox? Yeah, yeah. Michael J. Fox. That Jim. was you. No. <laughs> I get more to like, see you, Mr. Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> more like uh, Happy Days. My wife would probably say everybody loves Raymond. So, um <laughs> That's I a, love if you, both of those. Right. <laughs> I'm definitely a King of Queens guy. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Question number four. Hold on. From Happy Days, who are you? Duh. Chachi. Chachi. Yeah, right. <laughs> Ralph Mouth. <laughs> Ron Howard. He went on to great things. If I was going to be funny, I would have said uh, Tom Bosley, but I don't, I'm not old enough to really know Happy Days, but I know that that's the guy. That's that was Mr. the dad. What? That was the dad. Mr. Yeah. B? No, not Mr. No, he was the dad. Yeah. So right Tuesday uh, Tuesday night seven seven right. o'clock or seven thirty followed by Laverne and Shirley Apparently, it was great the two of us are older than you <laughs> yes that is stretching I, I know uh, a little yeah, enough for uh, yeah uh, yeah 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 <laughs> I can answer enough Happy Days trivia to be helpful at a trivia night that's about all I got question number four if you were stranded on a tropical island what two things would you want with you Herford you answered this one. I think then you asked. I did, and I forgot what I answered. Your husband was one of them. Oh, yeah, because he would totally give me whatever I needed. <laughs> so two things on a, you're stranded on a desert island or tropical island. What two things do you want with you? My wife. I, I agree. My spouse and a sailboat. <laughs> Classic. Harvard educated answer. I said food. <laughs> so you're at least getting away. All right. This is a, I have a question number five. What, this is a timely question. What is your all time favorite Halloween costume? We're recording this just a couple of days from Halloween. That's interesting because I've never been a Halloween fan. Me like, neither. Uh, right? And, and, it's, and it so causes dark. great strife in our office because Dr. Herford's very <laughs> Halloween. I actually buy Halloween <laughs> gifts for Christmas gifts. <laughs> Halloween um, ornaments for Christmas gifts. I, I love that some people love Halloween. I could just never kind of get into I don't know why. Well, like, my dad would never let us do I mean, he was a homicide detective, so he, we could never. <laughs> Lock you in the basement well, on Halloween Well, we were night. never trick-or-treating. I never got to trick-or-treat until <laughs> I was like 17 with a friend. But um so I love Halloween, but I don't I don't get to dress up and Jeff will never dress up with me. So my my kids ask me all the time, Dad, what was your favorite Halloween costume? I'm like, I honestly cannot remember one costume that I ever dressed up as. I was Tweedledee and Tweedledum with my girlfriend at age seventeen. Still we'll go back to that. We fought about who was the Tweedledum. Off topic story, Dr. Hagen, this is this is how it goes in our office with uh, Halloween. <laughs> I love telling the story because it was it was a really fun day. So about a year ago, two years ago, Doctor Herford says we we just moved into Soar, and she wanted to celebrate moving into Soar by everybody's going to dress up for Halloween. And she goes, "That's it." She looked at her staff and she said, "We're all dressing up like Guns and Roses." 
And she was like, all of you are uh, guns and roses. And she looked at me and she goes, you're slash. And I totally said, slash material <laughs> okay, right doctor, there. whatever. So then time comes, gets closer day of how the dress up happens. And I actually had a deposition that day. So I was wearing a suit and, uh, and I was like, I show up at work and Herford shows up. She's totally glammed out. She looks like Axel and she's like dressed. And then she shows up with a bag of stuff and she gives it to me. She had purchased me a leather vest. She had purchased me it a top hat. It smelled so good. It smelled like your buffalo. <laughs> a top hat, these fake arm sleeves um, that look like tattoos, a wig. She gave me the full slash effect. And I was like, Herford, I got this deposition I got to go do. And, all. and she was mad. I, I mean, it's I, the most mad she's ever seen. I've never I've really been seen. mad at him, but I was really mad at him that day. She wouldn't talk to me. Like, literally, <laughs> For real. It, it was like the staff, <laughs> the staff would come into the office and they'd be like, you really pissed her off. Like, she's really mad at you. <laughs> well, it was. You like, could have just put shorts on and been the guy from ACDC, right? I could have. Like I should have your done suit top on and uh, jacket. And honestly, yeah. it was like it was like one of those uh, like a marriage fight, like where you're like, <laughs> oh, I'm in a fight, and I don't really, I didn't know that I really walked into this fight, but I'm in a fight, and this is what, I, I don't was, know that concept. I don't understand what you're saying. Yeah, good answer. <laughs> I love your wife now. <laughs> I don't even know her, but I love her. I was like. Oh, oh no. Oh, 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 she's really mad. Like, oh, like I thought maybe For she'd sure. be like, Hey, you can't, Oh, come on. You're a party pooper. And I thought it was going there. And then I was like, Oh, oh no, no, I misread this situation. You're actually it really pissed a off. Real leather vest. It, it was, was truly leather. Like, Oh, well, at one point in time, the conversation turned to, and I quote, give me the best back. I'm sending it back. <laughs> it was, there was a very angry snatching of the vest, which is not, Exactly typical of me, but I yeah I was so upset. Halloween's a big deal. Until it involves Halloween, hide. apparently. Yeah, I don't hide my feelings very, very well. It's pretty obvious if I'm upset. I was that was the one time I was really mad at you. I think that's the only time I've been mad at you. Oh, you annoy me sometimes, but I've never been mad at you. Good to know. <laughs> All right, one more question. I do have one more question Hold for on. you. He hasn't oh, answered oh, his my question. Bad. Oh, he hasn't. No, no. Go ahead. Sure, I did. No, what he was says your favorite Halloween costume? You don't get into <laughs> Halloween, but that didn't answer the question. I thought that slipped past her. No. <laughs> I can only remember, I can actually only remember two. Um, one, when I was a kid that I actually won a, I don't know, I think I won a savings bond for or something. And it's a last minute thing. I'm all frustrated because I don't really want to participate. My mom designs this big piece of styrofoam makes a makes a, a, a like a dining room table puts it over my shoulders cuts my head out and puts a centerpiece <laughs> on the top of my head <laughs> and we, we, we want go up that to, picture right put on exactly our so we go Source up to sessions <laughs> is offering a thousand dollars for this photo of dr hagan and so we go up to the legion hall or whatever in town and you know walk around a circle and you know you end up with a hundred dollar savings bond but um that's the only one i can remember that was um did you of any win? interest? You won the savings bond. Yeah, and there was like me and one other kid there. I think. Uh, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> like, my costume won. <laughs> and then I have one bonus question, more of a serious bonus question. Something new this okay. year. Okay. All right. How do you find? How do you define happiness? Love this question, actually. Right. I'm trying something different. No. So happiness is what. It's just joy in your heart, right? 
And so I, uh, I've had this discussion with a bunch of friends and said, you, but how do you define your own happiness, right? How do you find your own happiness? And I, th- I always say, what are the three things that unashamedly, un, like completely bias, but happiness in your heart? Because I think when you try to say what truly puts, I mean, sometimes you're not even happy about what's on your list. You're frustrated that it's something that makes you happy or um or you don't get to put time into what it does. So I think in order to be healthy as a person, in order to be healthy in your relationship, I think you have to understand what makes you happy, right? So I would say top three things for me are, and, and you can't say family. That was, that was the other part of this, is that you can't say my family, my, my wife or my kids. What, what makes you personally happy outside of that, right? And so for me, it's, I would say, the, in this season of my life, it's the farm, right? What I what I get out of that, and 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 what it makes me think about, and how it makes me appreciate land and and culture, and, you know, spending time with the animals, um, helping people, right? So just joy of of like making somebody better, right? And helping people. So those are probably the top two things that 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 kind of put happiness in my heart, outside of my own family. So. Is that a, a roundabout way to define that? Is it the third one? You said three things. It's a rotating one. That one's a rotating one. But you it's said, a hard like, for, it's like, hard for me. I like that you said in this season of my life because hap- those things that make you happy do change. Right. And you don't have to look back on life to find the same sort of happiness. Yeah, I love that. But also knowing what that is. I mean, I think so many of us are distracted by um what all the things we have access to Absolutely. that that you sometimes lose, lose focus to what truly makes you happy and kind of have to wear it right if, if if like you know collecting figurines of some sort makes you happy then you own it right um if you know standing in a field with a bunch of cows makes you happy own it right but i think in order to be truly happy you have to understand what what truly makes you happy right in order to function in life in order to be successful in the relationships, all those things. Truly agree. That was a great ending to this segment, Jeff. Fantastic answer from a fantastic guy. Yeah, he blew us out of the water on you, that one. I you guys are saying. awesome. We'd like, I, like I'm so grateful to to have done this with you guys. So I really, really appreciate it. Don't stop. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> We'd like to thank Doctor. I got big love for you, Jeff. You know that. Uh. <laughs> you're one of my you're one of my top faves, Doc. <laughs> right in my back pocket. I got in trouble for saying that earlier. <laughs> no, in sounded, my pocket. It sounded like you had him on like retainer to do all your dirty work. <laughs> yeah, well. Maybe that's one of the things that makes me happy. Perhaps. Don't, don't judge me. I'm judging. <laughs> We'd like to thank Dr. Hagen for joining us on this episode of Source Sessions. You can reach him at neuropaxclinic.com. The link to all of his uh, contact information will be in the show notes. Um, we just appreciate it. You're one of our favorite guys ever, and we just love that we got a chance to kind of talk to you. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Thanks. Awesome. I truly appreciate it. Until next time, this has been Dr. Trish and Jeff Todd with Sore Sessions.